So this evening I'd like to speak about listening and speaking from the heart. And again, I'll invite us to see if we can, as it were, practice as we listen for you and as we speak for me and during a later time when we have some discussion for both of us. So let's try again. We invite this laboratory here where we uh, have, I think, enough safety and clarity of intention where we can actually sit and maybe listen in a different way than we usually do. Listen with our bodies, be with our hearts. I'll invite that listening with the heart for this talk and we can uh, afterwards uh, explore what that means more. So as I mentioned uh, two nights ago, there's a way in which uh, training in wise speech is a training in a number of different abilities. So it's not as simple, actually, as just coming to a retreat. Would that it were different? (laughs) Would that we could come for a week at Spirit Rock and have good food and, you know, do some mindfulness and some nonviolent communication and come out of it with a certificate, which you might give at the end of the seven days and said, you are hereby certified to be a wise speaker. (laughs) (laughs) So more this is a kind of, call it an introduction, where we're really, we're planting uh, seeds in a sense. And we're doing a lot of watering and composting and trying to do a weak, good nurturance and then sending out the seeds to grow elsewhere to pursue that metaphor. But in the long run, there are these different abilities which are really important for cultivating wise speech. And I think we're probably getting a clearer sense of them. You know, that we need to develop mindfulness. And uh, uh, Jean was talking this morning about the connection between mindfulness and the uh, nonviolent communication approach to distinguish uh, observations from uh, evaluations or interpretations and to distinguish feelings from various things, including commentary on those feelings, to distinguish, to really get at more directly, what am I actually noticing? What am I actually experiencing in terms of emotions or thoughts. And mindfulness is precisely that kind of training which is grounded in the ability to come closer to direct experience and to be able to really see the difference between more direct experience and often the rush of commentaries and thoughts and interpretations and assumptions and interpolations and so forth that come quite easily. In the uh, language of the Buddha, there's a technical term for what comes after we actually have direct experience. It's called papancha, P-A-P-A-N-C-A. It is usually translated as conceptual proliferation. (laughs) (laughs) 
And it's quite, it's, a, it's an evocative term, because it really, I think when we say that, we can know, oh yeah, I just innocently having this observation, all of a sudden there's this conceptual proliferation, and all of a sudden I'm back in the first grade, or two years in the future, or, you know, on another continent, or whatever. And so, uh, so the mindfulness really helps there. It really helps us to know more directly what our experience is, which is crucial for wise speech. We have to be able to know what we're experiencing. We have to be able to know the, our thoughts and our emotions and actually grow more able to know them in the moment. In training, sometimes we only know them a little while afterwards, so it's okay. In training for mindfulness, particularly with difficult encounters, sometimes we know three hours later, gosh, I was really angry. <laughs> you know, as we train more, we get to know more in the moment that that's what our experience is. And it's on the basis of that uh, direct experience and mindfulness that we actually can more easily act with wisdom and compassion, which is the point of all of this. Grounding in the body is a second capacity that's really crucial to, especially in this culture, sort of break some of the solidity of the thinking. You know, I remember a cartoon which showed, I think it was a play on um, Descartes, you know. Je pense donc j'existe. I think, therefore I am, is the usual translation. And, and it's, um, it shows someone saying, I think, therefore I am. And it's in a little bubble in a cartoon. And the next bubble, there are more things. I think, I think. And pretty soon, the whole cartoon bubble is filled with, I think, I think, I think, I think. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> It's kind of like, yeah, there was a, one of the great Thai teachers of the 20th century, Achan Buddha Dasa, wonderful teacher who I had the pleasure of meeting before he died. He was asked once what his um, assessment was of Western civilization. When I think of that, I always think of what Gandhi was asked, what he thought about Western civilization. He said, it would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> And Chan Buddha Dasa was asked, uh, what about Western civilization? He said, lost in thought. <laughs> <laughs> and so this grounding in the body is really crucial. It's really crucial for speech because there's something about being caught in that monolithic mind which makes it very hard to be wise. Again, it's kind of automatic. And that's why we train in mindfulness. And the body is this beautiful tool in a lot of ways, I'm just mentioning a few of the ways, but partly it helps us, if I can just be here, like at a meeting, let's say, and have a little bit of body consciousness, a little bit of with my breath, or my posture, or my hands on my knees, and so forth, the mental chatter is not the only game in town. And that's big. And so just to have some other thing that, that lets us know, oh, because it gives us, basically gives distance and space so we can actually see our thoughts more easily. That's really, and so this grounding in the body, valuable in so many, many ways. Uh, and, and so I really recommend some kind of body practice for everyone interested in wise speech. Helps in all sorts of ways. It helps us not to be so caught up in the thoughts. It helps us to ground. It helps us to um, kind of even out. You know, I know 
for me, I, I, um, I do yoga and I do a lot of swimming and I do walking. And I know um, actually after I've been like with a, to a long meeting, I go to a certain percentage or a certain number of long meetings. <laughs> and I know that actually after a long meeting, an hour of swimming is way more reliable than an hour of meditation actually. Because something about the body that evens out the kind of agitated mind or the overly busy mind. And so something like yoga or qigong or some kind of practice like that, really, really crucial. Then we've talked about working with intentions and developing wisdom and so forth. And um, so the area that I want to talk especially about tonight is this quality of training the heart to be more open so that it's more there with our speech. And that's also, that's also, I would say, an area of training. And it's kind of interesting because uh, there's something unique in the Buddhist tradition about the training to open the heart. We don't find it exactly to my knowledge in other traditions. That doesn't mean that other traditions don't have loving people. Uh, they all do, and they're beautiful other ways to open the heart, but there's something about the practice of loving-kindness, a systematic training in opening the heart, which to my knowledge is somewhat unique, and I've done some teaching. I've taught a few times with uh, Christian contemplative colleagues, and we I've done, uh, did one retreat on Christian and Buddhist approaches to opening the heart. And, and we also, we sometimes, at, I, I uh, co-teach the January loving-kindness retreat here, which is a week of loving-kindness, which is a beautiful retreat. And we sometimes have, uh, actually have nuns and rabbis and ministers come. And I always ask them, you know, is there something that you know in, in, um, in your tradition that parallels metta? And there really isn't. Again, there are certain things and there are all sorts of ways to become more loving, but there's not this uh, method. And so um, there's this beautiful way that metta can give us a way to help open the heart. And I want to talk a little bit about metta, then a little bit about the quality of listening, and then some about the quality of speaking, all from the, from the open heart or the, the, um, the heart of kindness and tenderness. Because you remember that quotation from the Buddha where he is talking about wise speech, and he says, one speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable as go to the heart. For, he says, we speak affectionately with a mind of goodwill. Another way to say it is found in this, uh, this is something I got on the internet. So it's purportedly a set of responses by children aged four to eight answering Uh, questions posed by a group of professionals, probably psychologists, asking them, what does love mean? And since I got this off the internet, who knows? (laughs) It could be some grandmother in Schenectady, New York, just made these up and attributed them to four to eight-year-olds. Who knows? But, But I will assume that this is true for the sake of tonight. And so this is, you know, you've heard the Buddha on wise speech. Here's Billy, age four. Okay. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. 
So that's kind of speaking from the heart that uh, there's something, one's name and one's being is safe in someone else's mouth. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Maybe I'll read some of these others. There are really some good ones here. Karen, age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. (laughs) That's another description of wise speech. The The wise speech, imagine little stars coming out and the eyebrows going back and forth when there's the open heart. So... We'll, we'll stay with those provisional definitions of speaking with a loving heart from the Buddha, Billy, and Karen. <laughs> so, so there is this methodical training that we can get that helps us open the heart, which I think has to be some kind of adjunct to developing and wise speech. You know, it's not like we train in a few methods and our hearts become loving that opening the heart is really a lifelong transformative process. I think we know that. And yet the tools and techniques can be, can be helpful, can be part of that process of opening, and can be part of a skillful way of really applying it, all of this to speech. You know, on the understanding of the Buddha and of many traditions, our deepest nature has qualities that are connected with love. In the Buddhist tradition, it's often taken that the deep part of our being has qualities of luminosity and clarity. And in the text, that's often connected with metta. In some of the texts, there's a description of what's called a brightly shining state of mind and heart that's luminous. And it's explicitly connected with loving-kindness, the quality of the open heart. Or this is from Martin Luther King about the quality of love. And you know, what's remarkable about King is he made, we might say, loving speech and loving action the center of a social movement. So you see, it doesn't have to be something that's just nice or that's kind of pleasant and and effective. (laughs) but it actually can be something very strong and powerful. Uh, and I'll come back to that later. He said, unconditional love is an often misunderstood and misinterpreted concept, but that kind of love has now become an absolute necessity for human survival. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. And he goes on to talk about how it's found in all traditions. In the Buddhist tradition, there's a beautiful teaching about the heart, which I love, which some of you know quite well. It's the teaching called the teaching of the Brahma Vihara, or the divine abodes. Vihara means house or home, and Brahma is the name of the king of the gods in the uh, old Indian context. And these divine abodes are actually the different stations of the heart. 
it's taken that the natural state of the heart is loving kindness. When we're really just open and there's nothing blocking the heart, we're in a state of loving kindness. Because it's really taken that this is our basic nature and that things cover it over. It's not like we manufacture love or we produce it by our efforts or we strenuously somehow make it come about. It's actually rather that we uncover the love by taking the covers off it, the veils or that. And I think we kind of know that. I think of, you know, sometimes in a crisis, everything drops away, uh, often for good, sometimes for bad. But, you know, when I've been in crises that happen where it's just an immediate need, it might be a medical emergency or something in a town where, just, where there's some clear problem, I notice that some kind of caring and love just comes right to the surface. Maybe you know that in, in families at times. Of course, it can go other directions, but I've, I've experienced that a few times. And it really, I think, points to how, or sometimes when we're at um, a place near death. You know, I know I've been with people. I remember one person who was actually a boss of mine for some time, and he suddenly got a brain tumor. And he knew he was going to die soon. And this man who was sometimes somewhat ornery and controlling was just full of love the last period of his life. It was very powerful to see that. And so it's taken that loving kindness is the natural state of our being. When that open heart meets something difficult or painful or meets suffering, it becomes compassion. So compassion is just a permutation of the open heart. I kind of like that. It's not like they're different things, different emotions. They're, it's a different expression because the conditions are a little different. And when that open heart meets beauty or someone else having something wonderful happen, it becomes joy. And it has as a kind of balancing act in this teaching equanimity which is the wisdom factor. And so there's something very beautiful about this um, teaching because it really points to the way that mature love has all of the other qualities. Because these four qualities kind of interfuse each other. So mature love has compassion. There's joy in it. And there's also the wisdom factor of equanimity. It's like there's a new book by Jack Kornfield. It's called The Wise Heart. It points to that. So the wisdom and the heart get interfused. And so we practice with loving kindness by working with these techniques of repeating the phrases. And we can do that for 10 minutes in a sitting. We can do that a lot here if you're feeling. It's a wonderful tool because, you know, sometimes in retreats or often in retreats, stuff comes up that's hard for us. We sometimes look at certain things in our lives or certain realizations are evoked, you know, about something in our life that can bring about a certain amount of pain or discomfort. And loving kindness is an amazing tool. It's a kind of, you know, I don't know, therapeutic self-soothing. It has other qualities too, but it, ha- it has that. It's a beautiful quality. And we learn those kind of techniques 
And as we do the loving kindness, in a way, we learn, and this is really important for wise speech, as we practice the loving kindness more, we learn, I would say, to lead with our hearts. And as we do that, it's naturally going to come out in our speech. I like to think of practicing loving kindness as learning to lead with our hearts. And it's not something that we necessarily have when we start. You know, I know for myself that loving kindness has been really helpful to develop certain qualities, that I was brought up to be fairly mental. I think my nature is fairly emotional. But growing up as a man in this culture, I was really trained not to be emotional, not to be in touch with my emotions, and to um, be fairly cognitive. And I remember having this experience when I was a student. I spent a year as a student in Germany. And I remember uh, I, I would go uh, from where I was living. I was living on an interesting farm, kind of a... It's another story, but... <laughs> it was a, a, called a biodynamic farm, which comes from Rudolf Steiner. Some of you know that. Really interesting, like kind of really interesting stuff. <laughs> I will shift the talk entirely for the rest of the talk to talk about this farm. Is that okay? <laughs> no. uh, just, just joking. <laughs> and uh, I had to walk about two miles from the, uh, from the farm to where I was learning German. And uh, one day I realized that I was just thinking all the time. And even though I had actually been an athlete, uh, uh, I had been a swimmer competitive swimmer for 10 years in age group and then uh, high school and university. And even though I was an athlete, I, w- I would say I was not aware of my body. They're not the same. To be physically active and aware of one's body are not the same things at all. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making an interpretation of other people's experience. <laughs> And, uh, and one day I just realized I was thinking all the time and I said, I'm just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> that was my image of my, my reality. And again, I think I was, uh, there was a certain amount of heart present, but it just wasn't so accessible. And so for me, I'm, it's really been over time through various means, it's been a kind of a training to bring that out. It's really, like I say, it's partly just taking off some of the layers of conditioning and opening up to that heart. But it's really this quality of learning through loving kindness to have the heart more present. And in fact, to have it more be something that can actually lead, that can lead us. So it's like the beautiful quotation I mentioned from Julia Butterfly Hill. She said, can I act out of love? That's leading with the heart. Or it's something like, some of you may remember the film on Gandhi. Do you remember the moment where he was shot? He said, Ram, which means God. He had a devotional practice. He was really, in a way, leading with his heart, his love of God. And he said it all the time so that when he was shot, that was the only word he spoke before he died. It was that quality of continually leading with the heart as a spiritual practice that he had. And so, um, you know, it's, uh, 
it's found in other traditions as well, but it's something that we can actually learn to practice, learn to lead with. My loving-kindness mentor, Sylvia Borstein, speaks of loving-kindness practice as casting a spell of kindness. (laughs) When we lead with our hearts, we cast a spell of kindness, and that's what we can train to do and do more here as well. And it's really this ability to to keep on uh, intending to be kind. Loving-kindness practice is the continual like knocking on the door of the heart, as I've said some of the evenings. It's not a forcing ourselves to be loving. It's a, it's a kind of like a knocking on the door to say, okay, come on out, it's okay, or it's maybe an invitation to let go of some of those layers which cover it over. And it's just this continual repetitive practice to say, to, to express through words, and interesting metta is a way of speaking from the heart, as a spiritual practice, we say, may I be happy or may you be happy. It's an actual way of speaking. And as we practice that more, we can actually do that a lot, even in the middle of conversations. One of the things I learned in my own training, partly, when I was training in loving kindness, I would be at retreats and I would sit in on interviews and we were doing loving kindness, you know, like 18 hours a day. And um, I found that I could actually keep the phrases going even when I was listening to someone. I could have the cognitive function going and still have the phrases going when I got good at it. It was kind of interesting because I could sometimes still keep it going and engage in a conversation. There's something, it's almost like a, like you see those monks counting the beads and so forth. It's something that just keeps on going. So you can have that quality of loving kindness. And I think, and as we do that more, we really find what stands in the way of our heart being open. A lot of loving-kindness practice, or a lot of speaking from the heart practice, is actually seeing how we don't speak from the heart, right? Or how we're not loving, and that's okay. That we see, when we do loving-kindness practice, we want there to be love, and we we may feel some judgment, or we may feel something else comes up. Actually, when we do retreats on loving-kindness, probably of all the retreats we do, they're the ones where the people's stuff just comes out more than anything else. It's kind of interesting. You know, just all sorts of things break loose from the hardened mind-body complex. <laughs> you know, and it's very, very interesting. And, but as we do that, there is a kind of a way that we uncover the heart by seeing what, what covers it over by noticing, and so many of us are doing that here. We're noticing a lot of other stuff. We'd like to be loving, we'd like to be mindful, we'd like to be expressing wise speech, and we're feeling anger, confusion, and so forth. That's okay, because all of this is a kind of purification process. When we have the right context, and we're not lost in it, but we're actually being mindful, and we're keeping on coming back, and we're exploring what's there, it's actually the process is one we might call that of purification. That's important to remember because we can go through a lot of stuff and it can really throw us for a loop sometimes. But there, there, we can really see it in that way. Picasso once said, art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life. It's true of metta. Metta washes away from the soul, the dust of everyday life. 
And so that's, in fact, our practice does that generally. And so as we develop in this quality of love, we can start to see also how we bring it into speech, how we both listen and speak from the heart. In some ways, it's continuing that process of the heart opening. In some ways, it's actually giving some specific attention to the nature of listening and speaking as we're doing on this retreat. So I want to say a few words about both listening and speaking. Listening is an incredibly powerful aspect of speech and communication. We're in a sense... We're not saying anything, but we're saying everything. <laughs> you know? How did it feel to be listened to on some of our exercises? It feels wonderful. You know, we talked, you know, we had some of those cards where it said, to be seen, you know, to be heard, and so forth. And as I mentioned, I believe that there's a deep yearning to actually be heard and seen, and when that's there, we can just relax and be ourselves. And it's scary that that's actually hard in this world often. And we yearn for that. You know, that's what we want with love, with a partner, with community. In a sense, we just want to be able to be listened to and accepted for ourselves, maybe given some friendly advice now and again. (laughs) At the right time. the fourth criterion for wise speech. (laughs) And it's powerful. We can really, listening is a beautiful metaphor for all of our lives. You know, I think you know, some of you know that listening is is this incredible um, metaphor for having an open mind and heart that uh, I have in my home a Tibetan woodblock print of the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa. How many people know about Milarepa? So quite a number of you. Who's, he was, he's probably the most beloved meditator in Tibetan history. And there are a lot of meditators in Tibetan history. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he composed poems about spiritual realization. And I kind of fell in love with him at an early age. And so I have this woodblock. And most of the time he's shown, when, he's, when they're paintings or prints, he's shown like this. He's in the mountains meditating and his hand is to his ear. Just listening. There's also Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin in China Kanon in Japan, in India, Avalokitesvara. Uh, Kuan Yin, how many people know about Kuan Yin? The Bodhisattva of Compassion. And it's said of Kuan Yin that she is the one who listens to the cries of the world. So the work of compassion is this listening quality this receptive and empathic ability to be with others suffering.
And so a lot of our meditation practice can be seen as a kind of listening, can't it? We, we listen to our bodies, we listen to our minds, we listen to the different voices inside of ourselves, we listen to our hearts, and we learn to become better listeners, not trying to manipulate or control our experience so much. And that those qualities of being able to listen internally get translated out very easily into the listening to others. I think you know that. You know that if we can, if I can listen to my own anger and just be present with it, I'm going to be much more readily able to listen to someone else's anger, for example, when it's coming towards me, and not go right to my defenses, because I'll have some familiarity with the whole experience of anger. And so it's incredibly significant to be able just to listen to oneself. It does translate in the ability to listen when we're in the realm of words with others. Because it's, what does it take to listen to ourselves? Some growing less loud of the mental commotion. <laughs> Right? Some quieting down so we can actually listen. Isn't that exactly what we need to listen to other people? So that we're not sitting there with another person talking and rehearsing? Or imagining what we'll say when the person's finished? Or developing a rebuttal? Or whatever? And so the same qualities we develop to listen for ourselves become very powerful for listening with others. And it's really, this quality of listening is so central. I remember uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, when she was talking about being with the dying, she said, what a dying person most wants is someone who listens with a caring heart and doesn't run away and basically doesn't try to fix things out of that person's own anxiety. Just basically someone who will listen. And I found in my own experience that listening is one of the most powerful tools for resolving conflicts and even for peacemaking. It's very interesting. For about two years, I was connected with a graduate school where I'm still connected, and I was chair of the faculty. One of my main jobs was to listen to people's complaints. And there were a number of them. I would say that most of my work was to listen to people complaining, usually about an interaction with another person. I would listen, I would let the person know in some ways that he or she was heard. I would try to listen carefully and with an open heart. And then I would typically say, I would basically give wise speech instructions, although I didn't call them that. That wouldn't have worked. <laughs> I didn't say, okay, go read the four Buddha's four guidelines on wise speech and <laughs> so forth. That wouldn't have worked. But so what I actually would say was, it sounds like you have a difficulty with this person. Yes, that's true. <laughs> And my suggestion is that you find a good time and actually go talk to that person. That was what my work was. I got paid for that. 
<laughs> and you know, I think uh, mediators are incredibly valuable. You know, and uh, that kind of listening is actually at the heart of peacemaking. If you study some of the great peacemakers in our world, a lot of it is about listening. Thich Nhat Hanh says the role of the peacemaker is to listen to the suffering of one side and then go talk about that suffering to the other side and then do the same thing from the second side to the first side. That's what a peacemaker does. It's as if when we actually can be in a listening stance and actually hear what someone's experience is, the reactivity goes away. Do you know that from your own experience, maybe with a partner or a friend? We get all worked up, but then when we actually can be open enough to listen with an open heart and hear that person's story directly and hear, oh, I was thinking this and I was doing this, it starts to make sense, whereas without that we make all sorts of assumptions and they come in under our categories to be of uh, basically harsh judgment because they didn't meet some criterion about what it means to be a good person. or multiple criteria of what it means. <laughs> and, and so when we actually sometimes hear someone's account where our hearts may have been hardened before, when we actually listen, something often softens. Do you know that? It's just such a simple experience, isn't it? And yet we forget that. We forget that over and over again. I've talked with several people who are great peacemakers. One person I've studied with is a man named Johann Galtung, who is both a scholar and a peacemaker who's gone to numerous uh, countries. And I don't, I don't have time to tell a story that's one of my favorites, but once he single-handedly helped stop a cycle of 45 years of war between, I believe, Peru and Bolivia in two days, almost entirely by listening, and then just out of his imagination, finding a way of resolving an issue that both people could really feel good about, mostly by listening. And he says, the role of the peacemaker is mostly just to listen. It's just to listen. And it's out of that quality of listening, often we have solutions and we have know what to do. That's why meditation is so powerful. And I think as we listen, we really grow more able also to speak from the heart. Because in a way, listening may sound more receptive and speaking more active, but there's also active listening and receptive speaking. (laughs) You know, that they're really very connected. And as we learn better to, um, to listen from the heart, I think we become better able to speak from the heart. It's really, again, it's a matter of practice. And I think we can really beautifully take advantage, advantage of the situation here to practice. I really encourage people to take risks because this is a hopefully like a safe laboratory. You know, do things, make mistakes. You know, I mean, not deliberately too much, but, <laughs> but be willing to, you know, take some risks because try out some things. And there's a way that uh, when we, in, in our everyday life, when we're practicing with wise speech, again, we use the guidelines, we do our best, and we find maybe where it didn't work so well. Or we find where 
I was trying for wise speech, but that old habit of being self-righteous kind of got in the way, and, <laughs> and people felt me as distinctly judgmental, and I was, <laughs> you know. And so it's, it's learning from that. So we really have to have this attitude with practicing uh, speaking from the heart of being willing just to see it as a long-term process. Because the habits that we have that go in the opposite direction are mostly, for most of us, strong. That's an assumption. <laughs> that may not be true for all of us, but I think everyone I've ever talked to in depth, it's true for. So I'm assuming it is for you, but I may be wrong. And so we, we work with wise speech and speaking from the heart, and it's, it's a lot of things are involved with it. It's partly, you know, we sometimes speak about speaking from the heart and its meaning, can I be authentic? Can I be in touch with my emotions? Maybe letting go of the mental control for some of us. And actually, for many of us, speaking from the heart might be to be vulnerable. You know, and we have to choose the right places for it, the right situations. One of the, as it were, occupational hazards of speaking from the heart is that we may sometimes be vulnerable in situations where it's maybe not so appropriate. It's something we can actually talk about. Uh, some where I may want to speak from my heart, and the other person isn't really interested in hearing me from my heart. Mm-hmm. Happens a lot after retreats. We're very much in our hearts. We go home. I mean, I have had this experience a lot, especially when I was first practicing. I would be deeply moved. I'd want to speak from my heart. I'd go to my roommate and, you know, I think you, you know the rest, right? <laughs> About five or ten minutes into my long discourse, my roommate would give very clear signs that he had to do his laundry or something like that, you know. So, uh, so the so important part of speaking from the heart is being able to assess realistically or as realistically as possible where the other person is at and to know that. It's also sometimes we can speak from our heart and feel like I've opened up my heart and the other person hasn't. We take a risk. We can make ourselves vulnerable and the other person may not reciprocate. That can feel pretty lousy sometimes, can feel hard. And so a part of, part of the speaking from the heart is knowing, is having the wisdom to know how to do it, whether it's appropriate. And, again, and of course, in doing so, we make a certain number of so-called mistakes because it takes time. We have to, you know, I came from an upbringing where I was kind of perfectionist. At a certain point, it was quite a while ago, I realized that there was something really crazy about perfectionism, which is that I said, if you asked me, I would say I want to learn. But there, I couldn't, there was no way I could make a mistake, and there, hence there was nothing for me to learn. Or let me, let me say it a different way. Are you getting that kind of the crazy logic? You know, it's like in my own mind, I couldn't really admit or want to admit that I made a mistake. Hence, I was really saying, I don't have anything to learn. And then I would also say, I want to learn. So it's kind of a contradiction. I couldn't really learn in that stance. And yet, if you asked me, I would say, of course, I'm interested in learning. I just don't want to make any mistakes. (laughs) And it's kind of, it's an interesting paradox that we can maybe find in in our minds. So we have to be willing to 
make mistakes. That's why community is so important. You know, or we've talked sometimes about continuing for those interested, maybe something after the retreat, where we get together and we we um, talk about all our all the ways that we've had um, difficult experiences practicing wise speech and all the ways that we've blown it. You know, and we talk about that together. You know, and there's also ways that we can try to practice wise speech and get distorted in other ways. We can, I would say, another occupational hazard of wise speech is being overly nice. Being a goody-goody. <laughs> you know, being self-righteous. These are kind of distortions. They're kind of what you can imagine. They're in ways that we think, oh, I will be nice and always say things that are pleasant. People will love me. They will think of me as wise. I will be known as the great wise speech saint of my neighborhood. (laughs) And it could be based on some misunderstandings. (laughs) So so I think we have to, in some way, uh, look out for that. And we can know that actually speaking from the heart can actually mean being quite firm and strong and clear in our communications. And maybe we'll explore that more in some of our other sessions, that we can actually be speaking from the heart and be forceful, not be caught in niceness, and be powerful. I think for a lot of us, that's challenging, because I think even in Buddhist context, I think we kind of associate being, having, speaking from the heart with a certain kind of uh, niceness that's sometimes tinged with timidity. Do you know what I mean? It's a little bit of the hazard of the Buddhist scene. (laughs) I don't think it's quite the same way in Asia. But it's, when you look to the, the Buddha and his discourses, he's often very forceful and firm with people, very strong, says things, you know, I like to talk about it as tough metta, kind of like tough love, you know, there's tough loving kindness. I think it's possible to be like that. I think of someone like Martin Luther King coming out of love, a lot of very strong statements, very powerful, and I think we find that in people who I think are motivated by love. It has, I think, a mature, wise speech coming from the heart can have that kind of strength and forcefulness. And so ultimately, I think I want to end here, ultimately, I think, as we practice this, and we do so in a community, we compare notes. And as we develop in all these ways, then we can really take advantage of these guidelines for wise speech, the techniques of uh, NVC, nonviolent communication, and they can really be tremendous uh, resources for our, our skill in wise speech. And I think then we, we start to become more and more mature like that, so that more and more our speech is connected with the intention to speak out of a loving heart. You know, and that's the direction, that's the horizon that we aim for. And I think I'll just, I'll just end with one of my favorite quotations, which is about this quality, this deep quality of the loving heart that comes from Thomas Merton, great Christian Catholic contemplative. <laughs> 
who uh, I, I used to live in Kentucky, and I used to often go to his monastery, and I, which I loved going to, and I got to know a lot of people who studied with him. I would, when I lived in Kentucky for four years, and I would go out there about every six weeks and was part of a group called the Thomas Merton Group. They were very interested in kind of Christian Buddhist dialogue. and It was beautiful. We, we actually didn't talk theology at all. We just talked about how do you open the heart. And there was not much difficulty going between traditions. It was pretty interesting. So this is what he said one day when he was actually going to a doctor's appointment in Louisville. He was just walking down the street. He wasn't in town that much. He was mostly in the monastery. And something just opened in him about the heart. And this is what he said. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts. The depths of their hearts were neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is on God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. Should I read that again? One more time. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality the person that each one is on God's eyes, if only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. Let's just sit quietly for a moment or two. So we have a few minutes for questions. I want to be precise with the time and finish uh, definitely by 8.30 because there's some people who have work meditation. But we have a few minutes for probably just one or two or three questions if any, or, or reflections if anyone has one. Yeah. Yeah. Please, Alma. Yeah. I remember today a um, uh, technique of mindfulness yeah. that, that I learned a month ago here. Um, and that I was thinking that with Meta would be like a, a good practice uh, to relate with the NBC class we had today. Yeah. And I would like you to talk a little bit more if you can. Is uh, the cho- choiceless awareness? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, choiceless awareness is a more a technique coming out of mindfulness. So it's not necessarily related to metta. Uh-huh. Yeah. Should I talk about it anyway? Yes. Yeah, 
I don't know if I said it wrong, sorry. Yeah. I was thinking that that and meta, I mean like cultivating the heart. Yeah. Anyway, and choiceless awareness, it was very clear to... The balance to, of the two? To make a difference when yeah. you are um, taking facts and evaluating. Yeah. Yeah, uh, see if I can make some of those connections. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, that's no, okay. It's, it's, um, in a way, the, um, I mean, it gets back to some of the other questions that we've looked at about the kind of what's the relationship between the mindfulness <clears throat> and other practices. And um, I think that these, it's really, you're really asking maybe how are these tools, how are these practices helpful for some of the work with observations and feelings and so forth. And there's a way in which the mindfulness practice just is, especially when we're really open to whatever's happening, that really trains us just to be able, as I was mentioning, to see what there is. There's a way in which, as we practice more with mindfulness, it gets more infused with loving kindness. You know, I remember one of my early teachers, a long time ago, he said, actually to see something in an open way, is to bring love to it. It's interesting. It's getting. It's, this is. It's getting a little deep, but. <laughs> but there's a way in which just that that uh, as we do more mindfulness practice, and have this open quality, it tends to get connected with with the heart. So sometimes we have an artificial distinction. We say, okay, mindfulness is more cognitive, and loving kindness is more of the heart. But I think we find that as we do each of them, they start to integrate. That's what I was talking about, how we move towards a kind of integration when we do this with the loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, and kind of the mix, the, the joining of the cognitive and the emotional, which I, which I think is so crucial for this culture. You know, it's like we're kind of caught in the cognitive so much. And the heart's absent, and it's absent from schools, you know. That's why, you know, some of this recent work on emotional intelligence is so important. You know, so um, I think we have to be trained to um, to be able to notice things, to distinguish between observations and interpretations, and between, uh, and really to have the, the open heart be able to be there with what's happening. And Jean will be talking in, a, uh, I think, maybe in two days or something about empathy that'll connect a lot of this with NBC because empathy is really, really key to the NBC work. And so I think we can make that connection there and try to, what we'll try to do with your question, Alma, is we'll try to keep on making those integrations and connections because that's part of what the energy of this retreat is to really take two approaches which come out of different sources and yet make connections. And it's something that's not just happening here. Interestingly, there have been a lot of monasteries 
which have adopted NVC as a tool to work with their communication. Several, you know, there's a Bayagiri Monastery, some of you know, in, in um, Mendocino County, and a uh, uh, large monastery of which uh, Achan Samedo is the abbot. I'm telling a little bit of the dirty laundry here. <laughs> but there's, basically, they found, now th- th- this should actually be encouraging in a certain way. And maybe I'll have to end here because we're at 8.30. But the, um, they found that even with all their meditation and training and study of the sacred text and so forth, they still found that they had conflicts. Not only did they still find that they had conflicts, but they found that some of them got messy. <laughs> In other words, they were human beings. <laughs> right? And what they found was they needed uh, somehow just having their teachings of wise speech and mindfulness wasn't quite enough. They needed some further resources. And they brought in NVC as a tool and they found it really helpful. So they're doing kind of something very similar to what we're doing here. It's pretty, I think it's a pretty exciting and innovative uh, connection. So we'll keep uh, looking for those connections. I think that's where your question was, was going. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to stop here because of the time because I want to honor the people who need to go to work. So. Um, we might have a chance to, well, certainly, can you reserve your question for tomorrow? Sure. Okay, and remember what it is, and we'll find the, you. find the, you can leave a note, or, or we'll find a place for it. Okay, so let's just again sit quietly to end. Two deep teachings on wise speech, speaking from the heart. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down, and little stars come out of you in the form of words. (laughs) When somebody loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Thank you very much. about a half an hour of Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.